Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mike on Howie. Chris on Soups. Mace on Hal and Matt on Group. Wake up Wednesday and we feeling it like nothing can intrude as we read in the tome of big stacks, singles bagged and boarded. Fitted in a box in the lab recording. Thoughts as they come, whatever they be. Comics is a world that we become. Sit back, listen to the man he sold. Wherever you are, wherever you're from, the Wednesday show is for all of y'all who leaf through books in solitude. Open up worlds that you dream of. The following show is from us to you. Peace. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Friday Titan. It's me, your host, Mouse. Friday Titan, the most fairly comprehensive and mildly entertaining podcast in the universe. Bad news, everybody. The cosmologist isn't here this week. He's trapped in VR. I don't know where he is, but luckily, I have his captor, Dimmy the Twin, in custody. Dimmy, what do you have to say for yourself? Where is the voice that said altered carbon would free us from the cells of our flesh? The visions that said we would be podcast angels. Instead, we became hungry for things that reality could no longer offer. The lines blurred. You want to know who I work for. The people who understood that who used it to become wealthy beyond words in the only currency that truly matters. Podcast content. Just tell me who had you framed the cosmologist. Come on, Dimmy. Give him up. You skip real death. A hundred years in the dark instead. <laughs> oh, this is hilarious. I know podcasters do real thing in virtual there is no deal in the studio. There's a fucking gun in the studio. Talking, I don't blow your stack out. Do you know the difference between podcasts and life? No. In a podcast, you know everything is being run by an all-powerful machine. Reality doesn't offer the same assurance. So it's very easy to develop the mistaken impression that you are in control. I want a name! I want a fucking name! Okay. Okay. Joe Rogan. Andrew! You're here! What? That's not possible. How did you escape VR? Well, it's simple. I just made it to the next screen. Pew, pew! You blew his fucking stack out, bro! <laughs> That's for trying to fuck up our release schedule, asshole. I'm back. I thought I was going to be stuck in a black void forever. Well, we're here and we can actually do the show. You know, bro, if you really think about life, aren't we stuck in... <laughs> Are we all really in a black void? I just tried to do an altered carbon-like philosophizing right now. (laughs) 
So if you the didn't, black void was inside us all along. Yeah, it's like a uh, murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> isn't isn't that the twist? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that sounds right. Everybody kills the black void at the same time <laughs> together. What are you talking about? Uh, I'm just thinking of like a dumbass twist. Speaking of dumbass twists, uh, so altered carbon is what we're talking about. Speaking of dumbass twists, today on the Friday time, if you didn't cat, if you didn't watch, listen, if you didn't watch altered carbon, what we just did is nonsense. However, if you did watch wa- altered carbon, also what we just what we did, did is still nonsense. <laughs> right. So we're gonna be talking about this television show. Um. I first, I, I want to talk about why we, why we chose to do this. So, quite literally, the the, episode, the the TV show came out February second. So around late January or mid January, they released a trailer, and it was all just like buildings and flying cars and fights and uh, dudes giving intense looks and dusters. It was very like Matrixy, and so. Matrixy, Blade Runner, Blade Runner, and so I just, you know, I texted Andrew. I was like, "We're doing Altered Carbon because that's like exactly the kind of shit I like watching. I know you appreciate that kind of stuff." And we were, what were the expectations for you? I don't think I'd even seen a trailer. I think you just told me we were going to talk about it, um, <laughs> but. I was I was sold on the opening credits. I mean, it's got snakes in it, which is sweet. And it it does the whole like I'm going to reference classical mythology and highfalutin ideas and also look awesome and have space stuff and future stuff. I'm like, great. I'm all, I'm all in. Yeah. Um I quickly discovered that it is very blade runnery. Yeah. Uh in a way that so we had just both watched Blade Runner 2049. Um, you can reference our last episode for a discussion of that, or two episodes ago. Uh, and I had just watched recently um, the Scarlett Johansson Ghost in the Shell. Mm. And so bits and pieces of Altered Carbon feel like both of those un- worlds, both of those films. Altered Carbon's interesting because it pulls lots of different sort of tropes from a lot of that kind of media. Mm-hmm. And I'm into that kind of media. I like it a lot. Um, it's a little bit too 80s mm-hmm. uh, for for my wife, um, but she was a champ and stuck through it. Uh, and we, uh, we noticed there's some interesting stuff going on in it, um, but it's Blade runner in, I think both the best and worst aspects of saying something is Blade Runnery. Right. <clears throat> Let me, so I'm going to give sort of a high level critique here. And then I want to get into some of the specifics of the show. So the high level critique and thought that I want to start the conversation with is comes from this guy named uh, Mark Bernardin who is like Kevin Smith's podcast host. By the way, Kevin Smith, get well soon. He had a massive heart attack, uh, and he was in the hospital last week. 
And he's like, yeah, a, he seems like he's doing okay now. Yeah. And he's like a nerd podcasting godfather. So in many ways, without him, the Friday time and the Wednesday comic book show wouldn't exist. Um, so what his podcast co-host, and he was talking about Justice League, um, or maybe he was talking about Batman v Superman, but the distinction he made was between what a movie is about versus what happens in the movie. And Ooh, I like this. So I want to posit here that for me, Blade Runner seems to obsess with really impressing upon the audience what the movie is about. Those weighty themes of reproduction, of post-humanism, of transhumanism, of, of the human condition, of violence, of war, to the point where almost nothing happens. It's a very, like, very, very, very simple story arc that is just filled to the brim with, you know, philosophical musings and meanderings and shit like that. For me... And sometimes literally people meandering through the rain without uh, umbrellas. Or music. <laughs> For me, Altered Carbon is different. It's the opposite. So instead of... um focusing on like what this is about and really driving home something that's poignant or thought provoking it obsesses with what happens it's very stylized in creating like cool ass set pieces in you know creating terminology for things sleeves and stacks and meths and uh head in the clouds like that amazing you know sci-fi set uh, set or the Sunshot House which is another amazing sci-fi set or the Streets of Bay City which is another amazing sci-fi set or the Raven Hotel or the Fight Drome or uh, the Jacket Off Brothel like <laughs> creating all of these places and having us engage with what the characters are doing and what happens to the point where at the end you're like I'm not actually sure that there was a point to this whole TV series yeah, and I think that so that's sort of two things coming out of that. One, um, this was, and I noticed this in sort of the first episode, and uh, Vicky and I were talking about. You can tell when something is as an adaptation of a novel, mm -hmm. because there's versus straight to movie or from a short story. Because when it's an adaptation of a novel, there is invariably some exposition in the first or second episode where somebody explains terms. Yep. And 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 uses terms uh, really um, pervasively, and so as you pick them up through context, and then somebody be like, "I don't know what you mean." Like, what do you mean you don't know what the seashells are for? <laughs> um, and then yeah, you know, they explain what the seashells are for. <clears throat> um, so also, we were right. This is this did feel a lot like Demolition Man. Yeah, I expected it to, and it totally did. Though I think I prefer Demolition Man. So. Some, one of that is just sort of a, a side effect of it being adapted from a novel. They're trying to cram a bunch of information in. And in that way, it benefits from having, however, like, what, 10 episodes? 10, yep. Uh, in, instead of trying to fit it into a two-hour film. Um, the other thing, though, is that, well, it might have too much time to obsess over set pieces because it there are a bunch of voiceovers um, very Blade Runner-y, very noir, very self-aware voiceovers about, you know, war is peace, right. and peace is an illusion, and illusions are war. 
and <laughs> um, I don't care about anything. And there's a very sort of nihilistic view. And but the nihilism, whenever you have a nihilistic main character, mm-hmm. you run the risk of your show not being about anything. Yeah, and at the <clears throat> end, this show might just not be about anything. The the um, the co- so we're going to interrogate that. Yeah, and the counter to that is that. I think the high-level, poignant, philosophical narrative was Joel Kinnaman's character, Takeshi Kovach, trying to come to terms with his humanity in an era where the nature of humanity is really fraught and what, what it means to be human is very fraught. And so he comes into the world isolationist, very much against working with people to the point where he says, I don't have friends. You're not my friend. I don't like you. I'm just doing this so that I can get, you know, a pardon for things that I did 250 years ago. Fuck it. And then his story arc is such that by the end, he really cares about the people that he's had to surround himself with. And he has a different lease on life and a different understanding of what it means to be human. The degree to which and that's they... very much a noir trope also. It's like I'm a you know, post-war vet, private dick with PTSD, and I don't care about anybody, and then I'm forced to. Right. Um, the degree to which that's successful we'll talk about over the next hour or so. so. Um, but first, let's unpack a little bit about what the fuck this world is. So the best way to do that is to bring up some of the terminology that they use. And they're very, um, they're very, like Andrew was saying, like very intentional about having us understand that from the jump. So Joel Kinnaman's character is dethawed after 250 years in like cryo or cryostasis, right? And so when he comes back, he comes back as part of a bunch of people who are being either pardoned for crimes or returned to their families and quote unquote resleeved. And so he gets this like tutorial uh, about all of this shit, which he doesn't need and they don't need. This is one of the things that's annoying about exposition because all the people who are being told about sleeves and stacks already know because they're in sleeves and they have stacks and they've lived past lives and shit like that. So a sleeve is a human body. A stack is a little device that is located in people's necks. And this was... So it looks like an art, a single artificial vertebrae, essentially. Yeah. Um, and as we understand it, they, it only works because we colonize other planets and found a deposit of alien metal. Mm-hmm. that allows us to it like works as a hard drive for human consciousness yeah so that metal allows us to basically write our consciousness onto these little usb port drives that you surgically stick into your spinal column and that can be um, altered and upgraded and um, integrated with different kinds of software and different kinds of malware. So people are like walking embodiments of the internet in this world. They're PCs is the best way to think about them. And like you said, the, the processor and the hard drive is the stack. And it's also their connection to like something like a soul. It has all of their memories in it. It has their emotions in it. 
it's um, susceptible to pop-ups. Like as people are walking through cities, they either see broadcasts and advertisements or they have a uh, an extension in their stack that allows them to bypass all of that. So it really is like people are walking PCs. And you can change sleeves by having your stack removed and put into another sleeve, but you can't put it into the same sleeve unless you are a meth who has enough money to be able to afford a clone. Yeah, because the important piece is that sleeves are still organic human bodies. Mm-hmm. They're they're still real. They're still flesh. Um, when you're like one one year old, you get your stack implanted in you and so your brain is downloaded into the stack and at that point your sleeve is you're no longer connected to your sleeve or you don't you no longer have to be connected to the sleeve so but we still need to create human bodies the old-fashioned way right unless you're very rich in which case you can build clones of your own sleeve yeah and then effectively live forever yeah, and yeah, so that's like the key to unlocking unlocking immortality, and that creates conflict. One thing, one thing I want to note about sleeves and stacks, and this happens periodically throughout the series, is that there is some kind of like Shakespearean drama built into this device. Insofar as there are all of these cases where people pop up, and you don't know who they are, they're and this is like very blatantly used as a dramatic device as much as it's used as like a techno futuristic critique of posthumanism to the point where um, one of the characters moms comes back as this like white dude one of the characters grandmas comes back as a sleeve of this like giant bald uh, brooding motherfucker who then later is also another character it takes on a different connotation when he's you know when his stack is in that body and so there's a lot of like moments where you're like oh wait who is this <laughs> who is this person this is weird they're not acting like themselves could it be because they're a different person and usually it is they are a different person um Another thing that you said is that there is a lot of space travel. And so we're living in a world where uh, different planets have been found and they are transmitted throughout these planets through needle casting, which is... Yeah, and that's the thing is because we can now download our consciousness onto these stacks, we can then... The stack itself isn't really important if you can upload your own data into a needle cast and broadcast it. And then you can technically broadcast your data to another stack somewhere else in the galaxy, download that into somebody, into another sleeve, and then you subvert having to do, you know, faster than light travel because you're just transporting information instead of matter. Which, if the singularity happens, (laughs) could be possible. (laughs) like as a thing yeah it's sweet yeah um another thing about this world is that everybody has bizarre compound names um for instance the lead character's name is Takeshi Kovach and he's like half uh Scandinavian half Japanese and you see that with a lot of characters 
a lot of characters speak in different languages and everybody understands every language. So one of the lead characters is Spanish. She speaks Spanish to a guy who speaks Arabic and they both understand each other back and forth. And this is like a critique of, you know, like the future nature of, you know, racial mixture, cultural mixture and shit like that. So we're in a, a future, future, future where a lot of these things have lost relevance, like race. Well, there's also a certain amount. There are a lot of sort of classical and biblical allusions here. I mean, the first thing to know is that um, there is there's here appears to be one church. Yep. Or one dominant church. And the church is opposed to people having stacks or rather it's opposed to people having more than one life. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, well, if somebody's sleeve is destroyed but their stack is intact you could spin them back up spin them up put their stack you know, spin them up put their stack in another sleeve and then they could tell you who killed them and this is that scene. resolution 653 um yeah resolution 653 set yeah is like trying to pass so that you would spin up murder victims because here's the thing yeah yeah, it's because you, you always have the opportunity to spin them up, but if they get religious coding, so if they are a member of this church, the church puts actual hard code into the stack mm -hmm. that prevents them from being spun up after death. They go, it, yeah, and they say, it says, like, they can't, they can't be spun up again. But Resolution 653 would say, well, in case of murder, spin them up anyway. Yep. It would, yeah, it would bypass that whole religious coding thing. Um, <clears throat> some other stuff to note. So this world is the product of a war between the envoys and the protectorate. So the envoys are, there's a moment also, because I'm going to make this parallel between the envoys and Jedi. There's oh, Absolutely. There's a moment <laughs> in which... Uh, Takeshi Kovach has a bunch of infected, uh, what do you call them, stacks of all of his Envoy compatriots. And the fact that he wasn't able to spin them all back up and create a force of Envoys to like reclaim the universe was so such a fucking bummer to me. When they decided to go another way, I was like, fuck, dude, you have all of the stacks of all of the envoys who are basically like these super hyper soldiers, Jedi motherfuckers who can who can fight. They have all the physical prowess. They have all the weapons prowess. They can see through walls like their powers are almost limitless because they've they've unlocked the potential of like the human mind and stack melding and what their mission is 250 years before like the core narrative starts is to eliminate stacks and eliminate the ability of people to um, resleeve themselves and gain immortality and we find out later that the the leader Kel actually invented stacks and she's created the envoys as a way to reverse what she believes was a huge mistake on her part and the mistake comes down to classism it basically comes down to well everybody has the ability to live forever or the potential to live forever but not the resources right and so if you're rich you just sort of stay rich because the only thing that can sort of finally disrupt the power of a rich person is they die mm -hmm. but if they don't 
die, then they just keep amassing resources and they become meths or Methuselahs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they just keep amassing resources and they become sort of vampires, basically. Um, so you have this upper caste of hyper wealthy individuals who have enough money for clones, have enough money to secure and maintain their own status and power and just never give it up because they don't have to and they can live forever. And there is a very much um, sort of vampiric. There's a single piece of art that keeps getting repeated throughout the show, which is um, of Kronos, mm-hmm. Zeus's father, uh, trying to eat his own children. Yep. It's very much like the old immortal trying to prevent progress from occurring. Um, so, and that that's not by accident. And no- um, I was going to say, notably... And I think this is like a, a, a an underdeveloped critique, but notably the reason that Kel makes stacks is for the reason that we just talked about with like the singularity pro- possibly being able to like download information and transmit it across far expanses. Her initial intention in creating stacks was exploration was to find new things, was to enrich, like, the human experience through, um, like, traversing, like, long distances. She had, like, basically she was, like, uh, she had wanderlust, and she wanted to continue exploring the galaxy and, you know, uh, different cultures and shit like that. And, like, the the, the kind of, like, sub-critique there, which, again, is underdeveloped, is that the the way that we're fashioning technology right now is is seemingly well intentioned but when it's commercialized and brought into the fold of our current like capitalist uh, inequitable society the rich rich people seize on it and use it for all of these nefarious purposes so that critique i feel like gets buried by gratuitous like tits <laughs> and these crazy set pieces but i think that Agreed. was an intentional kind of uh critique they were making yep no absolutely um and it's unfortunate that sort of that's it, most critiques like that you know you have to sort of let's show you the depravity of these ancient vampire people mm-hmm. in order to make it clear why this is wrong but the depravity is also like cool looking and makes for fancy set pieces. And I think the show got distracted by its own fancy set pieces. And there is again, sort of like game of Thrones, like Rome, like lots of these sorts of shows. There's, well, we got to really show you the crazy world people live in, but then we forget why we're doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, the other thing about uh, and, and Cal is an interesting character. I love I love the actress who's playing her, and I love the amount of kick-ass women in this story: Ortega, Ray, Cal, Lizzie. Well, eventually Lizzie, but her character is just 
schizophrenically written where she has mm. she has to do so much legwork like she has to train all of the envoys she's the source for the civil war that's happening within the protectorate which the protectorate is like basically just like the larger government and um their like secret services is SeaTac, which are these like cool looking uh, fucking vid- out of a video game super soldiers with yeah, guns they, and shit. Their like. helmets are sweet. They're unnecessarily creepy looking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they look they look uh like creepy but not in a functional way. Like why do you have all that shit? <laughs> why why do you have all this shit on? Um but so the like her character is saddled with, you know, explaining also like the the moral stakes of this project to the point where it's like she doesn't have a center. And that's really frustrating because uh, the actress is doing the best she can with the material, but she's doing like everything, like all of the, uh, everything that happens in the show comes down to Cal. And then she appears in flashback. She also appears as this like materialized ghost in VR, but then also in real life. So her, her, she doesn't have a center. Yeah, she's trying to be love interest, but also Yoda and (laughs) also revolutionary leader. And it's just it's too much Um, because the problem is we don't actually get why we should care about her. Mm -hmm. Her relationship with Kovac is basically she tortures him for a while and then suddenly they're in love. Right. And it's not so much emphasis is put on her being important but no emphasis is put on developing any kind of emotional weight because she's too busy trying to be like four other things. Right. And the the reason that she tortures Kovach, we mentioned SeaTac and we mentioned the Protectorate, is because Kovach as a kid, Takeshi Kovach as a small child, killed his father for beating his mother. And so he's taken in by the Protectorate and he's trained to be SeaTac who are the bad guys. He defects much like Finn from star Wars and becomes an envoy who they barely trust. Um, him and his sister are, are, are bringing brought into the fold of the envoys and through a crazy amount of, um, contrivance and, uh, different double crossings and backstabbings. Takeshi Kovach becomes the last envoy and he's captured in a fucking hotel room. And this is what happens in the first episode. A lot of the stuff that we're talking about doesn't get revealed until seven or eight episodes into it. When the first episode Kovach captured, killed, put on ice, and he comes back as Joel Kinnaman's character and his job or his, the reason that he's brought back is to investigate the murder of a meth named uh Lorenz Bancroft played by James Purefoy. And so the store the the show is trying to do this like this like double narrative or triple narrative almost. There's three major plots that are happening. There's one plot that involves Takeshi Kovach and the envoys and the protectorate early 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 uh, 250 years ago and how that whole civil war happened and how the envoys eventually lost. The second narrative is uh, Takeshi Kovach in this new white guy's body investigating this murder. The third narrative, I would argue, is the Lizzie narrative. And Lizzie is a... Yeah, great. And Lizzie is a young girl whose 
basically her brain is broken and we don't know why but we know that she was forced into prostitution that she had a run-in with Lorenz Bancroft that her mind is basically broken and throughout the story she is being trained by an artificial intelligence named Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> in a VR world. My favorite character. Yeah, to become a killer. And all three of these stories are connected. The oh, the overthrow of the envoys, or sorry, the, 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 the envoys lost in the Civil War, Bancroft's murder, and the, like, breaking the of AI. Lizzie's brain. Yeah. And um, the problem is, actually, despite it being 10 episodes... I think they're actually given too much time, which is weird to say when you've got three narratives you're trying to weave together. But it got once I got to about episode seven or eight, it occurred to me that I really liked the story in principle, mm -hmm. but that it was being told in the wrong order. Yeah, um, and it was. I feel like I would have much preferred a two episode or like you know, two-part movie-length, you know, maybe two hours each, or one was two hours, one was two and a half hours, uh, one that was just before the 250-year time skip mm -hmm. that's all about the envoys, where we get more development of those relationships and more of Kovach as his Asian original self, mm -hmm. and then one that is the hard-boiled P.I. noir narrative after the time skip. Yeah. Because what I realized was when you get to episode 7 or 8 and you reveal all of the, the backstory with the envoys, if you just told me all of that first, I wouldn't have needed any of the sleeve stack nonsense in episode 1 and 2 because I would have already known why this what the sleeves are because I would have seen the creation of them I would have seen the attempt to destroy them it would have been emotionally much more resonant f to understand sort of this not know that the the thing that the rebellion was doomed mm -hmm. see it fail and then do like a firefly thing where you see it fail and then you see the people in the aftermath of it because when it's woven together, I don't understand what's happening until episode seven or eight. By then, I've had to really force myself to watch to get to episode seven or eight because I don't care. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I care, I realize that I would have cared more if it had been told to me in a different order. Um, so by the time you finish the show, like, okay, I understand how all this fits together. But it was a chore to get through like episodes three, four, and five because I just don't understand why I should care about any of these people. So you don't think they articulated the stakes effectively? <clears throat> yeah, and I think that, you know, in its own, it's, in its own sort of like hyper self-aware way, or like, oh, it's a mystery, it's, you know, twisty and turny, and you have to unpack it. I'm like, okay, I unpacked it by the end, just like I unpacked the whole, you know, what's the deal with um, Bancroft's murder. Mm -hmm. But you can do that with a mystery. You can't do that with character motivations. If you do it with character motivations and you're forcing me to unpack why I should care about these people, you're running the risk of me just not doing that work because I don't have any investment in anybody. Yeah, so <clears throat> to to give some context on that, if you haven't watched the series or if you don't remember, episode seven 
is the revelatory episode. It's the episode that takes place on Harlan's world, and it shows what what happened 250 years ago. So you have to get through six one-hour episodes, so six hours of television, before you really for sure know exactly what happened to the envoys in this war with the Protectorate and who invented the stacks and why that was a mistake, why she did it. And I would argue episodes 8, 9, and 10 go very quickly after you understand the stakes of everything. So as you're saying it, I'm like, yeah, I, I think I do agree with that with that critique because you're supposed to just take on faith that you should give a shit about Joel Kinnaman and which is very difficult because Joel Kinnaman repeatedly talks about how he doesn't give a shit about Joel Kinnaman. Right. And he doesn't give a shit about anybody else. And I like the secondary characters, but when you've got that like the the center character being like, I care about nothing, like okay man. <laughs> like then why do I care? Right. Um It's not it's not cool. It's just boring yeah i, I would it's a real tra- it's a real turn off at y- that point it's like i watch this man who cares about nothing have a bunch of sex right like eh, he's weird looking i so like I, if he if i was emotionally invested with him then i'd want to see him have a bunch of sex or if he was hot i'd want to see him have a bunch of sex but right. he's like very strange and kind of flat looking right and i don't care about him emotionally and like after episode eight i'm like okay yeah i could see him having the sex and having emotions but until then too much sex and not enough emotions i'm like eh. uh yeah i would disagree with that because i did feel like they so they laid enough groundwork for me to care about joel kinnaman and sympathize with him to a certain degree because you knew that he was takeshi kovach you knew that he was now in a white body which is very jarring for him you knew that he was on yes. ice for 250 years. You saw him in a room being killed by SeaTac by these like crazy guys. You see his love interest get murdered right before his eyes. You see him you see him vocally say as Takeshi Kovach, "Oh, I don't care about her. Yeah, go ahead kill her." She dies. They oblige him. He reacts very negatively. You see him bluffing, and so when he comes back to the world, and he's like, "I don't give a shit." You've already seen him lie about that, Bluff. so you knew yeah, that's fair. You know he's a little like, you know he's a lot uh, emotionally emotionally unavailable, but also emotionally invested, but also feels like he has like the macho obligation to like not give a shit, and he's also been burned in the past. You don't know the extent of it, though, and that's the part of the critique that I do agree with. You don't know the extent of, like, there is, there are literally centuries of trauma <laughs> embodied in this man. Uh, you don't know that until episode seven, though. And I like cynical immortals, um, just generally as characters. Um, and I like the idea that, you know, like, look, he's been on ice for 250 years. He doesn't understand anything. And his first, like, I'm just going to get really high with this unicorn backpack full of drugs and try to like stay out of things. Yeah. And that sort of like getting pulled back in. We doesn't want to be. That's compelling. And the, get o- that. and the other thing now that I'm thinking about it is that they reference 
and I'm only thinking about this retrospectively, which means that it didn't work in the course of the show. He, <laughs> he references in the beginning, oh, this is this is what happened. Like what we were fighting against has fully engulfed the globe. And now it, it, the, our worst nightmare has happened. So he's even more dejected. Yeah, he's trapped. Like it makes sense that he's super defeated and just trying to stay high because he's seeing the aftermath of the war he lost. Yeah, they lost. He, and it's it's fully realized in front of his face. Like and, we lost. Um, and everything. And the you know the the meths have taken over. And there's this massive economic inequality spurred on by the fact that these hyper-rich people just don't die, right? never go away. And that is – that's compelling, but like you said, because we don't fully get that until episode seven, yeah. it doesn't really work. Right. Um, let's talk about some of the more – Let's talk about some of the places of the show because I think one of the things the show does well is create environments. Um, yes. So one of the environments that I fucking loved was the Raven Hotel. <laughs> so the Raven Hotel is the headquarters basically of like the new burgeoning resistance. And initially it's just Joel Kinnaman and this AI named Poe who is for all intents and purposes, like a carbon copy of Edgar Allan Poe and the architecture inside yeah, it's the interesting because Go ahead. I was just going to say the architecture inside the hotel is like, like uh 19th century inspired kind of Victorian ish, just like old seeming, but there are also guns in the ceiling <laughs> because this also yeah, takes it's, place it's awesome. in the super future. Yes. Yeah, so what's cool about about these AIs, and this is my favorite part, and very much like the AI in Blade Runner for 2049 was my favorite part, of it's got kind of a Star Trek Next Generation feel of AI trying to understand what it means to be human. Um, Data in Next Generation, there would be whole like bits of episodes dedicated to him playing poker with... Um, AI versions of Einstein and Stephen Hawking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and just, and so the AIs around a poker table in um in Altered Carbon is very much a, a play on that. And so some of these AIs hate humans. Some of them want to understand humans. Some of them are sympathetic, and they're also now old. So there, it's understood that AI hotels were which is the idea that it's a physical hotel run by a sentient computer program, mm -hmm. um, were a fad like 50 years ago, but they are creepily possessive of their guests, and they stalk you after you've stayed there, and so nobody wants to stay there anymore. So there are these essentially abandoned buildings that are sentient, that are desperate for guests. Yep. Some of them have gone on. It's so like one of them now makes creepy porn. Um one of them like some of them just don't care about humans anymore or they feel dejected and rejected and are trying to live their own virtual lives but the one that has decided to cosplay as Edgar Allan Poe is trying to understand humans and he's sympathetic and so Takeshi live, um, ends up being his guest and then 
Poe is bonded to him. And his is one of the more fully realized character arcs because, obviously, spoiler alert, he dies at the end. After having taught Lizzie, who is one of the, who is a, the the subject of like the third narrative of the story how to be human again which is like a crazy uh, kind of reversal of our expectations because her father can't get her to become human again her mother is dead and so (laughs) she she is brought to poe and poe is tasked with teaching her an ai mind you of teaching her how to be confident enough to go out into the human world again. And he accomplishes it and develops this like bizarre tie in relationship to her that at the end when he dies, it's like emotionally uh, weighty. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And interestingly, her mother's not dead. Her mother is in prison. Yep. She was captured or arrested for being a hacker. And what they do with people with long sentences is they just remove their stacks from their sleeves. And the sleeve, you have to pay a mortgage on. Mm -hmm. So if you have the money, you can pay it off. And it won't be, you know, given out to somebody else. But in the meantime, you live out your prison sentence in essentially power saver mode. Suspended animation. Yeah, just like on a shelf somewhere in your little cyber vertebrae. Yep. Um, which means, and if you don't pay off the mortgage on your stack when you come out of prison, you're just resleeved in an available sleeve. Yep. Um, some other places, Fight Drome, which is this basically it's like a fight club run by this guy named Carnage. Um, and it serves as like a pivotal piece of the puzzle of Bancroft's murder. That was the most 80s thing I've ever seen in my life. God, the, it's just Thunderdome. And the character of Carnage, it looks insane. He's like a fucking... He's like a, like a Max Headroom feel to him. He looks like Max Headroom with a fucking high top. With a fucking mm-hmm. high top fade. It was bizarre. Um, like eraser head. Yeah. Sunshot House, which is Bancroft's uh, where he lives. It's literally like in the clouds and it's fucking beautiful. Whenever they go to Sunshot House, it's like uh, the budget on this fucking TV show must have been astronomical because yeah, the of the CGI is legit. Yeah. Um, so sun- it's funny because I actually I just just started watching Inhumans. Really? Um, yeah, I just watched the pilot, and it's it's been months now. But we're trying to get caught up on Inhumans and on the last, most recent season of Agents of Shield, just so we've seen all the MCU stuff before Infinity War. On the off chance that there's any stuff in there, probably not. But it's it's interesting because pilot of Inhumans and Inhumans, you know, notoriously savaged by critics. Right. Um, the pilot's shot in IMAX, and then and they beautiful Hawaiian scenery. But the CGI is bad. Really? <laughs> and and there is uh, the city of Atlan on the moon, which is supposed to be this, like, grand sort of brutalist architecture. It's very, like, PS2 graphics. 
right. um, which was interesting because I was thinking about Altered Carbon when I watched it and thinking about like fancy future cities. Um, anyway, Altered Carbon looks beautiful. Um, maybe a little bit too much spent on CGI and not enough spent on like editing everything together at the end. Yeah. And the last place I want to mention is Head in the Clouds, which this you're talking about this place will absolutely get... is a double entendre because there's nothing subtle about that. That might actually be the most subtle sex joke in the <laughs> um, in the show. Yeah, but it's like in Head in the Clouds, it's not just about getting blown in this building. It's also about like getting your head cut off. <laughs> <laughs> because there so what head in the clouds is is uh basically like a sex uh, spaceship where all of like the wealthiest new meths and old meths come to realize their most fucking base sexual fantasies and desires and the girls that they recruit to work and the boys they recruit to work and the women and the men that they recruit to work in Head in the Clouds as sexual objects and as sexual slaves are trained to desire being killed and maimed and brutally raped by the the proprietor, or not proprietors, by the patrons of Head in the Clouds. So it's this very bizarre, like, and old-timey, almost Pizzagate-ish critique of like old or rich people and what they like <laughs> it's like all of yeah. these rich people are crazy pedophiles who have gotten to the point in their immortality where nothing excites them beyond the most taboo crazy um almost in that Westworld vein but it has it's absolutely yeah i was thinking that this show um the bits and pieces that this show takes, it takes that from Westworld. Um, it takes the sort of whitewashing post-humanism from Ghost in the Shell. Um, it takes the sort of scenery from Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. um, and it mashes all of these things up together. We, in Sometimes in an effective sort of combination and sometimes in a way that is distracting because bits of it are so obviously nods to other better shows right um but yeah you're absolutely right so the idea and the interesting thing about the this people who are being um snuffed out and head of the clouds is they assume they're coming back yep because people's um attitudes toward their own bodies is now not as invested as ours is there's a real dysphoria there because they can get resleeved and they assume, you know, if I do my job and die convincingly, I'll get resleeved in a better body and it's fine. And, you know, these people are rich enough, they'll take care of me, they'll clone me something new and better. Um, and we see throughout instances of this happening where there's a, a married couple that are hired to fight for the entertainment of Bancroft. And they're like MMA fighters. Yep. And whoever wins gets an upgrade. Whoever loses gets a downgrade. And they come home to their kids in different sleeves every day. And, but that's normal for them. Right. The uh, issue is <clears throat> um, that, you know, if you can convince somebody they're going to get resleeved and then just not resleeve them, 
um, or change the or change their coding to spoof it so it looks like they're religious so they don't get spun back up, then you get the ultimate thrill of actually real deathing somebody. Yeah, and then you have a rock solid alibi because they can't get spun back up to accuse you. Yep. Um. <clears throat> so let's talk about some of like more high level critiques of the show. There are a few that I want to tackle. And this is something that I, I don't even know what to make of it. I don't have a thesis, but it's something that I noticed watching Blade Runner 2049, watching Altered Carbon and different kinds of sci-fi shows. Game of Thrones to a to a different degree. There is a gratuitous amount of nudity and just fucking in this series that is totally inconsequential to the plot and the narrative. And I do not understand why in these dystopian stories that just is a feature of the future. Like, is it is it some kind of like sex positive critique that I'm missing like in the future sexuality will be more fluid and free but if so then why does it have to be so misogynistically oriented like what what do you make of like the gratuitous amount of sex and fucking just tits everywhere (laughs) I think you can read it a couple of different ways I think that if a generous reading would be that the future is liberated um and you know, that we are suffering from a vision of a liberated sex positive future when we ourselves are still caught in the puritanical present. And so it makes us uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. The problem is that it's being and especially in altered carbon when people don't really care about their bodies because that's not your body doesn't define you. Your stack defines you. Mm-hmm. So. You know, sleeves are if sleeves are interchangeable, then like who cares if I have my tits out, right? Right. Um, but so body image almost isn't the thing anymore. Um, the issue being, or body image is more of a thing because now my body is even more of a commodity because I literally bought it or grew it, and so I want to show it off. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is that it's being created in the present by present humans who do have sort of internalized misogynistic bullshit. And so we're unable to conceive, or these showrunners are unable to conceive of a sex-positive future that isn't gross. Um, The problem also is that it's not a sex-positive future. It's a sexual future, but sex is a commodity, and it's an evil capitalist dystopia. And so sex becomes gross because there is no you know sex positive free love because nothing is free right you have to it's all transactional everything's advertising everything's a product and so it's the ultimate like commodification of the human body and so in that way it makes sense that it's super gross and kind of like creepy because that's what we find creepy about bad porn now is the um the like human body as product Mm -hmm. now and i think westworld does the same thing where like 
it's an evil future in which people don't care about each other and also these robots aren't people and we are encouraged to let your inhibitions go and not see them as people because they're not so mm. you know let it rip um and it's just sort of uh and that's the artistic way of masking the fact that like we also just want to see tits and blood on screen and so it you know it serves by you know, both purposes of oh it's a cautionary tale right don't do it right but also you know you want it <laughs> yeah so i think that's what i think that's what's going on <clears throat> yeah it's just like i don't know there's it there's just so much of it and it's so it's seemingly unnecessary one of the other things that you talked about. I think the you know, the alternative here is like a Star Trek future. So Star Trek often references pleasure planets, like where people take PTO, uh, Ryza, mm-hmm. um, and we never see it because, um, but uh, yeah, that's true. In Enterprise, we do start to see it. But if we were to see like a fully liberated sex positive future where there's a bunch of nudity, but it's not creepy and that you know people don't get killed <laughs> right. that would be a that would be a star trek pleasure planet uh, Riza is like you know nudist beaches where everyone is just like nice to each other yeah but that's not what the shows are and it, it makes me uncomfortable well the other thing about this show is and it's a matter of perception i guess for the viewer whether or not they accomplish parody successfully but they they sort of balance the representation of you know uh women who are victims of rape basically with multiple characters who are women who are also like have the most amount of agency so like that's true the character of Kel like Lizzie's narrative, which is one of, you know, intense trauma, then sort of rehabilitation and then revenge. It's like her story is this very Tarantino-esque story in which, you know, the victim becomes, you know, the hero at the end and serves in this pivotal moment and basically saves everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that the, the show is the show is doing that thing where it's like, look at this look at this depravity and look at this victimization and uh, continue to see it happen until the end when there's supposed to be a catharsis in which, you know, the, the victims become the heroes. And that's the thing is like in, in in some ways it's very much like a 1930s. We've been doing this ever since white heat gangster movies of, you know, you love, the crime and the depravity and the violence, but as long as everybody gets what they deserves, yep. gets what they deserve, yep. then it's okay. You can feel good about yourself. You don't have to feel weird about having watched this or uncomfortable because everybody got what they deserved at the end. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that that really works that way, but it's certainly the logic under which everything's being portrayed. Yeah. That's how people defend speaking of Tarantino, that's how they defend his use of these really like fucked up characterizations of women and shit like that. And of, you know, grotesque murder 
and you know uh, moral ambiguity and shit. It's like, well, all the bad guys either die at the end and the good guys go on to live. But that doesn't erase the fact that you know what you're representing is you know like victimization that it almost seems to have no point besides being just like graphically gratuitous. Yeah, because like if it's okay to have a bad guy, you know, you're supposed to be the bad guy. You're supposed to hate him. You're not supposed to not agree with what, but there is a line beyond which like I get it and then I understand why he's a bad guy and then like now now it's just torture porn. Right. And it's a, it's a tricky line to walk. Yeah. Uh, I don't think this show walks it successfully. Yeah. The other thing that you talked about in terms of... And this is another question that I do not have answers for, but I see it happening in pop culture right now. There seems to be... I don't know if it's an embrace. Maybe it's a tolerance of. But the subject of incest. Now... I know this really bothers you. I, it doesn't bother me. It baffles me. I don't understand why. Two things. Let's 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 identify two things in pop culture right now that are huge. So, uh, pornography, mother son scenes are enormous, and this is like some straight up Freudian Oedipal shit, but they are enormous. If you ever go on fucking Pornhub, you're gonna you're gonna see it on the front page, most viewed globally and in the United States. You know, <laughs> horny mom uh, gives a horny son handjob or something like that. Enormous in pornography right now. Also, Game of Thrones. People are, which is sometimes just pornography. True. People are shipping Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen. Who are related to one another, they don't know it, but we know it, right? And yeah. and so people are shipping uh, this nephew fucking his aunt, and vice versa. And I think there is an important sort of distinction to be drawn about. I think before we can interrogate why it's popular or why it's happening, it's important to interrogate why it's an issue to begin with, right? That's true. So, like, incest comes about as a social taboo mostly because of, like, the genetic consequences that come from incest, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you see it in royal families. You see it in pharaohs. And like, if there's a bunch of inbreeding, there you get a bunch of bad mutations and weak chins and horrible um, health issues, and you know, recessive genes keep popping up, and like the weakest genes are repeated over and over again, and you get malfunctioning humans essentially. Yeah. And even before we really knew what genetics were, like humans have been breeding both eat with each other, and then controlling the breeding of crops and animals forever and so we all knew as a species don't do that shit because you're going to have consequences um, <laughs> yeah. but and then beyond that you sort of get into a moral issue of when you're talking about a caretaker 
and the caretakey, I guess, and that, that sort of parent-child, you know, parent-child relationship. Yeah, yeah. The it's more it's like bosses and employees. It's, yeah. it's a power dynamic. It's, yeah. Well, you don't know if this person's actually consenting because you have a superior power status. It goes back to issues of slavery, issues of, you know, that idea of is this person does this person actually want to have sex with you, or are they in a position where they are unable to say no, mm-hmm. or unable to know what it means to say no because you have authority and they trust you, and so that I mean that's where the Harvey Weinstein issue comes from. That's where like you know that whole issue of influence, and so I think incest and the prohibitions against incest come from that two-pronged idea of genetic problems and the inability to actually consent because you're stuck in this emotionally manipulative relationship. So when it comes to, say, Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen, they are distantly related. They are also... There are two interesting things here. They have lived entirely separate lives in entirely separate cultures. Right. So there is no sort of like they're emotionally compromised. And in their alternate universe, we know that actually the recessive Targaryen gene is important because the more full-blooded Targaryen you are, the higher your concentration of dragon control is. Like they're mutants, right? Mm Mm-hmm. They're essentially mutants, and their mutation is the ability to communicate and control dragons right? and be fireproof. And so the the more Targaryen you are, the better you are at that. Right. So in their case, that relationship makes sense for a bunch of reasons. Now, in the case of, say, the Lannisters, right, where they've lived together forever, and that's sort of incest in the classic creepy sense, that's, you know, that's a non-starter. So, <laughs> I guess you know that's where I come. That's my th- breakdown of that. This is also the breakdown of somebody who's an only child, which probably helps, right, to, to have some sort of distance from, from, uh, from that particular moral quandary. It, it, I don't. I'm not sure if morally, I have a problem with it. I'm just fascinated by the seeming, and maybe this is just a misdiagnosis, but it seems like people are more accepting of representations of incest. Maybe that has something to do with like a a new sexual liberation and an embracing of different sexual proclivities. I don't fucking know. But it's fucking everywhere. Like, we are awash in incest. (laughs) (laughs) And in this show, the reason that I bring that up is in this show, um, basically, the big bad is his sister. His sister turns up and is the cause of everything. She's the reason why the, the woman that he loved 250 years ago died. She's the reason why he was brought back and re-sleeved she what uh, orchestrated the suicide of the guy whose murder he's investigating and she is 
obsessed with him in a way that borders on physical intimacy to the point where at one point she says she's going to eat him up. Well, and she also sleeves herself in Ortega's oh, yeah. body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, gets in a bathtub. <laughs> yeah, in an attempt to flirt with and have sex with him. Um, or test, you know, how clear he is, or how um, observant he is to see how long it takes him to realize that it's not actually Ortega. Um, so, and part of that, I think, is the representation of emotionally underdeveloped people. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, the, the, the crux here is that they were separated as very small children. Um, they went through this traumatic experience together. She has this very like childlike wanting to just be together with him in a family unit. And, you know, it's us against the world. Mm-hmm. And, that when you superimpose that sort of childlike bonding onto adults, well, the difference between children and adults is that adults are sexually active and children are not. Right. And it's sort of par for the course that when an adult who is a sexual being starts spouting like these childlike tropes of, you know, together forever never leave me it becomes sexual yep yeah i was convinced that she wanted to fuck that guy it was (laughs) as i was watching it i was like oh she wants to fuck him she wants to well she certainly doesn't want anybody else to yep yeah she was like oh my god she was very possessive and uh, monitoring his sexuality she was (sighs) man (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So I think I think that's what that is is that and it's also I mean that's also like a an Asian trope not to sound like super racist what the, <laughs> um well the onisama idea of like the the younger sister older brother obsession of being hyper protective and um. Yeah. Sword Art Online, Revolutionary Girl Lieutenant. Um, just like it. It. It comes up a lot. Um, and I don't know if that's. Yeah, you know, I don't know if incest is sort of filtering over from Japanese porn as well as Japanese pop culture. If that's part of what you're starting to see. Um, but it is a trope of family first at all costs, and that can bleed over into becoming sexual. Yeah, and I don't want to give uh, listeners the impression that incest is a major part of this story. Because <laughs> it's not. We've talked about it for like 20 minutes. It, it's just a really a seeming, it's an obvious dynamic in the last like two or three episodes, but more generally, it's a it's in the popular culture zeitgeist in a way that is just fascinating and just kind of baffling. So let's get to the Peabody award-winning segment here, the Rotten Tomatoes reviews. This show is one of those shows where audiences fucking loved it. 90% of Rotten Tomatoes, people like it. 
Critics were lukewarm on it, 64% based on 70 reviews, 45 of them fresh, 25 of them rotten. The critics' consensus is Altered Carbon leans hard into its cyberpunk roots, serving up an ambitiously pulpy viewing experience that often overwhelms but never bores. So I was on, I was with you until that last word. Yeah. Um, because I think it does, I think it is boring occasionally. Um, I think it's probably two episodes too long. Um, but they're right that it's very pulpy. It's very ambitious. It's, there's like a sensory overload sometimes. It's, it's visually stunning, um, but overwhelming. Yeah. I was, I was thoroughly entertained throughout. I think that as much as the, the emotional ambiguity is a little bit of a put off in the early. I think the set pieces are enough to carry you through to being invested in sort of like the cult, like the culminating arc of the story, which does take too long to happen. But I am glad I stuck it out. I'm glad I finished it because around episode like six or seven, like, okay, yeah, I get it. And then the last couple of months really fly through once you, we all, well, everything clicks. Yeah, you 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 gotta just find a little bit of comfort in the first like six episodes, in just sort of reveling in the architecture and the set pieces and the and the CGI and shit like that, and then having fun with Poe and and Ortega's craziness and shit like that, and know that the revelations are coming and it's gonna take a while to get to them. And they probably should have happened earlier, but there's enough to tide you over in those earlier episodes where you're like, okay, um, there's some fucking kick-ass fights and there's some bizarre weapons like a gun that shoots a bullet that comes back into the fucking chamber. <laughs> just yeah, like, I think it's super cool. There's a, the fucking knife that has Reaper in it, which is basically like injecting somebody with DMT. There's just cool shit that isn't like necessarily it doesn't come back. He never, he barely uses that gun. I don't think he uses it once. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I keep expecting it to come back and it just never does. Yeah. But it's just like, all right, there's cool shit everywhere. Let me just look at the cool shit and then I'll key into the story when it happens. Um, so let me rattle off a few of these. I'll read some positive and some negative since there are enough of both. A positive one from the Boston Globe, uh, Matthew Gilbert says, Part of the thrill of Altered Carbon, the new sci-fi series from Netflix, is figuring out the rules of the strange future universe we've dropped into. And I think that's right. I think that as you're sort of learning stuff and you're learning about the war between the envoys and the protectorate and you're learning about meths and you're learning about all the drugs and you're learning about stack technology it does raise some questions in your mind about contemporary technology, contemporary relationships between, you know, people and being networked in ways that haven't been portrayed on screen before. It's not like it's not like the Matrix where you have to jack in and 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 you have two different lives like an internet self and a human body. It goes to the next step in the evolution of technology where the body is networked constantly and it shares these different relationships with um, humanity on the one hand and technology on the other hand. So 
I think that's right. That that's probably the most interesting part of this whole s- series is like that critique. Um, Agreed. So let's read a negative one. So Sophie Gilbert from the Atlantic. Unfortunately, all too often the series feels akin to the villains in the world's. Start over. Unfortunately, all too often the series feels akin to the villains in the world it's creating. A wash with cash, but in need of a soul. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I think that speaks to what we were saying earlier about how in its attempt to depict the depravity of the world, it becomes a depraved show, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's difficult to, to have a moral high ground of, like, here are the bad guys. And, like, that's just the whole show. Yep. So... It, it dips probably too far that way once or twice. Yeah, I think you know the 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 fact that he gets tortured in VR for an entire episode is just too much. Yep. Um, Eliana Doctorman from Time Magazine says, despite its futuristic setting, the show's treatment of race, gender, and class feels downright retrograde. This is a Bond-like pastiche that delivers the sex and violence of 007 without any of the style or substance. I take exception with the idea that James Bond is substantive. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, oh, hold on. Listen. Yeah, you really go to James Bond for that hard-hitting social commentary. This woman just said in a critique that... Oh, this piece of culture here doesn't deal with race, gender, or class in a substantive way. Go watch James Bond? Are you fucking stupid? (laughs) That is the dumbest shit I have ever heard in my life. It's like, oh yeah, James Bond. (laughs) The, The bastion of leftist views on social difference. Yeah, watch the one with Pierce Brosnan and Halle Berry. No objectification. It's fucking perfect, bro. God, that's so stupid. Yeah. Because I agree. It's weird because it, in her attempt to like get a pithy one-liner out of that, because she's comparing it to James Bond in the first half of that sentence, and James Bond is not, not favorably, but like not a compliment. Like it's just like James Bond, right? In that, I thought that's where she was going with it. In that, they're both shallow and obsessed with sex and violence and then it's like but james bond that's that's the the morally superior one i don't what (laughs) and i would disagree with the i don't know if the treatment of race gender and class are are retrograde i don't think that they're they are i don't think they're revolutionary there's there's a lot of interesting like racial and post-racial commentary in that of being what happens in a world where you can essentially change your race as you change your sleeve and but then also dealing with bias and prejudice i think it's you know it attempts to leapfrog race a little bit because it's talking about class instead Mm -hmm. yeah it's a there there should there should have been an interrogation of i think one of the ways uh because like sleeves are monetized and they're politicized would be to interrogate uh 
people's desires towards different kinds of sleeves. Yeah, like the white ones cost more. Yeah, like shit like that. Like it's a it, it, there's an easy way to interrogate the nature of race when bodies become so interchangeable. I think that the idea is that the body becomes so devalued in this future setting that people lose their attachment to the color line to the point where you're right. everything becomes so fluid and there's fucking Scandinavian Japanese uh, motherfuckers inside of women's white women's bodies like and all all of the identity politics sort of get lost in this melding of technology and and skin to the point where skin becomes like this negligible feature it's all about the stack and what it knows and its upgrades and its religious convictions and shit like that but i think that they could have done more to play with it i don't think that it's a retrograde treatment of any of these things and as a piece of culture that has that definitely fucking uh passes the bechdel test and that also has a bunch of women characters who are agentic and who drive the story forward and are not just objects it's it it does a great job there is a very 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 important asian male lead in this series which needs to be recognized because the dearth of asian male leads in popular culture is fucking almost criminal <laughs> it's like they don't exist but takeshi kovach at the beginning you're like oh my god they just they just uh, eliminated the asian character for the white guy but then you realize oh no takeshi kovach isn't going anywhere he's in he's he's there for the entire series and I think that's important. I think that matters. Uh, yeah, agreed. We'll do two more. So <laughs> this is how this is exactly how I feel about it. This guy encapsulated my my feelings towards the series. It's Tim Goodman, Hollywood Reporter. He says Altered Carbon is flawed, but it's also fantastic, and that's how I feel about it. <laughs> I'm like, this. <laughs> oh, I did. Okay. I'm like, this show sucks, but it's also rad. Like this show, <laughs> yep, this show fair. is bad, but it's also very good. And I know you think that those two things can't be true, but you should watch the show and then you'll know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that in this case, they are not mutually exclusive. They're really, it is simultaneously bad and really interesting yeah. and valuable and good. Yeah. And that's frustrating sometimes, but yeah, worth watching. Yeah, um, we'll we'll leave on a let's not leave on a negative review. Let's leave on a positive review, uh, so your weekend can start with a positive kick. Uh, Willa Paskin from Slate says the sheer amount of imagining, both borrowed and original, accumulates into a vast, dirty world and gives altered carbon the feel of a proper cyberpunk novel. Big, baggy, ambitious, trashy, funny gruesome clever cheesy and hyperactive <laughs> yeah man i think that encapsulates my feelings about that show that's yeah if you like cyberpunk you'll like this series if you are a fan of the the simultaneous the like the simultaneity of 
dumbness and fucking radness and philosophy that doesn't matter but you can make it matter if you really want to like if you really want to read into the series but you don't have to do that I think you'll like this show if you're looking for something that's gonna fucking blow your mind you won't like this show like this show is not gonna blow anyone's fucking it might but like for for sci-fi fans, it's not going to blow anybody's mind. They're not going to see anything like really new here. They're not going to see like it's not like the Matrix, which pushed the boundaries really in the '90s and also stole all that material for, from sci-fi novels. But you're going to see something interesting. You're going to see something new. You're going to see a, a bunch of different kinds of people represented on television, which is which is good. You're going to see Joel Kinnaman in a leading role that I think is uh, for me really cementing his status as like a a a movie star um i think that he this is a net positive for him even though it has sort of a lukewarm critical reception i think he he came out well a lot of the reviews that i read praised his performance um yeah so i would recommend i see joel kinnaman's butt there's a whole lot of it there's a whole lot of Joel Kinnaman ass and there's a lot of dude dick too we shouldn't we shouldn't uh just say there's a gratuitous portrayal of breasts and female ass there's a lot of dude ass and there's a lot of dude dong in here too so if you're interested in that you should watch this movie or watch this uh tv series um that's it any final words on altered carbon no, um, that's I think leaving it with uh with the uh, with the butts is, is a good place to to leave it. My thing, cyber if, butts. If they do season two, I want to see the return of the Jedi. I want to see the fucking envoys come back, and I want to see uh, I want to see Takeshi Kovach in his original Asian self. I want to see Elias Riker. I want to see Joel Kinnaman have to play a different character but be the same person. Um, yeah, we saw a little bit of Riker. Um, briefly in a flashback and I'd like to see I don't want to see Joel Kinnaman play Takeshi Kovacs again I want to see that Asian guy because I liked him a lot yep and I'd like to definitely um, yeah see more of the world Um, uh, the the one thing okay so do have a final thought the one thing that I feel like happens a lot in these sorts of shows is they reference the alien contact and the alien metal and the space exploration a lot. Yep. And we don't get any of it. We need aliens. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> we need the fucking aliens, bro. We need we need those we need the fucking stacks of the envoys to get reactivated. We need a fucking army and then we need the aliens. <laughs> aliens. <laughs> um that's it. We did it. Follow us on Twitter at Weekly Comic Show. Follow us on Instagram at Wednesday Comic Book Show. This is the web- website, WednesdayComicBookShow.com, every Wednesday and Friday for updates. WednesdayComicBookShow at gmail.com if you would like to, uh, to, to talk to us. Send us questions. Send us comments. Send us suggestions. Send us anything that you would like to. Requests for collaborations. Dick yeah. pics. Uh... <laughs> Don't send us dick pics. 
I feel like that's illegal. Um, also, hashtag Friday tie-in on Twitter if you prefer to connect that way. For Andrew, you could follow him at CB Cosmologist on Instagram. Um, that's it. We did it. We don't know what we're going to do next week, but it's probably going to be fucking awesome. Jessica Jones is coming up in the future. A Wrinkle in Time is coming up in the future. Doomsday Clock. That's dropping soon. So we got a lot. Yeah, of, it's been a while. The last issue of Metal. That's dropping. Finally, it's gotten. Yeah. So we got a lot Catch of on that. We got a lot of shit Infinity coming out. Infinity War sooner than you expected. Yeah, April twenty seventh, Infinity War, and we'll also be reading Infinity Abyss and Marvel: The End to Andrew Chagrin. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Stay tuned, everybody. Yeah. We'll see you in the next one. Bye. You ever seen a nerd speak in thin air? You ever seen such comic book flair? You ever seen two, three, four, five nerds fight and argue over made-up words? Superman, Batman, and the Green Martian approach these worlds with Supreme Court shed. Listen to us as we rant and rave. Flip and follow on to the next page. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.